in the book of Acts that we find ourselves right now, specifically Paul's missionary journey. Paul has finished that first missionary journey with Barnabas. John Mark was along for part of the time to put it into context so that we're in the flow. After that missionary journey, Paul wrote the letter of Galatians, what we call Galatians. And so we've been looking at that letter supplementing the narrative in Acts. I want us on the map, though. I want us to see it. You'll recall in Acts chapter 2, Luke tells us about all of the different, not all, but a number of different regions that were present at Pentecost that came to faith and heard the message. People from very diverse lands. And I put pins up for all of the different areas that Luke lets us know were already hearing the gospel message by virtue of being in Jerusalem on Pentecost. So if you look at that map, there are three glaring areas that are missing the gospel message. This first area is an area where Paul and Barnabas go on their very first missionary trip. They launch out from Antioch. It's the area closest. They hit the island of Cyprus. They hit the coastal areas, and they go up into what's called Lower Galatia. And that's the Galatian part that I've highlighted in green on the screen. So Paul and Barnabas, John Mark's there for half that journey. They go up and they hit those churches. Paul goes back to Antioch and then will go down in, in, in Acts chapter 15 to Jerusalem for a conference. But it's during that time after that journey that Paul writes. Now you will notice that there are still two big areas. That of Macedonia and Greece and that of the West, which we would call Spain and France. Um, those areas have not been reached yet as we understand the history given in Acts. They may have very well been reached by others, but we'll read about Paul uh, uh, reaching Macedonia and Greece, and we'll read about his plans, when we get to the Roman letter, to go west once that time arrives in his life. So that would be done, according to church history, after the narrative in Acts. So that's where we are. And in the process of going through that in Acts, we've had a chance to look at Paul writing this letter we call Galatians. And he didn't write it simply as a thank you note. Paul wrote it because he was already concerned about what was happening in the church once Paul left. His concern makes sense, both by reading the letter, we can tell what it is, but it makes a little bit of sense if you look at the map. Because all of those popsicle sticks or pins that we've put there are Jewish congregations Jewish people who've heard about the faith. And so you've got a lot of Jewish congregations that are surrounding the Galatian area. And it's not surprising to find out that after Paul and Barnabas had left, others came in. And they came in in a way where they were preaching the good news of Jesus Christ differently than the way Paul preached it. I had a chance yesterday to visit with a a new friend of mine, Brett Maverick. And Brett asked me the question at the end of our discussion. We spent almost two hours together. Brett said, I have one last thing I'd like to ask you. I said, what's that? Now, Brett's a believer. He said, I ask this question of a lot of people. And it's, it's kind of my standard question I want to make sure I ask everybody. I said, ask away. I'm thinking it's going to be something really hard. It wasn't. It was this. 
What is the gospel? Well, we live, eat, and breathe Paul right now in this class. That makes it quite easy to answer. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. That's the really good news. And all other news in the history of the planet pales in comparison to that news. Paul says it to the Corinthians. I would remind you, brethren, in what terms I preach to you the gospel. It's 1 Corinthians 15. That Christ died, was buried, resurrected, appeared, will come again, and he launches into this whole chapter on resurrection. Paul says, think about this for a moment, because I want to put Galatians back up here. Think about that 1 Corinthians 15. Brethren, brethren, I would remind you what terms I preach to you the gospel. Look, this, we don't want to miss this. This is integral to understanding, so I'm going to throw it on the Elmo for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers... Of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day. And he launches into him appearing. Those are the terms in which that's the gospel. Those are the terms in which Paul preaches the gospel. This is the gospel he preaches. It was no different in Galatia. That was the gospel he had preached. Now look at what he writes to the Galatians. Because here's his concern. I am astonished. Whoops, let's go back to the PowerPoint, please. Thank you very much. He writes, I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. The Galatians are turning, in Paul's mind, to something different than Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and resurrected. They were turning to something different. And Paul's very concerned about it. Paul tells them, there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. What's the gospel? Jesus died for our sins, was buried, resurrected. Somebody wants to distort that. Paul goes on to tell the Galatians, you foolish Galatians. By the way, I've left out Paul cursing the people who would distort the gospel of Christ. I left out Galatians 1, 8, and 9, where he says, If anybody, if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which I've preached to you, what was the gospel Paul preached? Christ died for our sins, was buried, resurrected. If someone else tries to teach you any way to stand before God other than that, let him be accursed. And then Paul like underlines it and says, Let me repeat myself. And says it again. Then he says in Galatians 3.1. You foolish Galatians. Who's bewitched you? Before your eyes. 
Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. What's Jesus publicly being portrayed as crucified? The news of Jesus dying for our sins, being buried and resurrected. What is that news? Good news. That's the gospel. So he says, you foolish Galatians, I preached the gospel to you. Who is Who has beguiled you? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? The Spirit is what confirms the gospel. Jesus had promised as much in John 14, 15, and 16. He's going to, the Father will send another who will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, who will testify and bear witness to Christ and confirm what Christ has done and teach the apostles what it meant. Teach us. The Spirit is the driving force behind the gospel. Not only the events of the gospel, but the proclamation and conviction and witness of that gospel. So Paul says, are you so foolish having started? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, what is Paul getting into here? Paul uses a a metaphor of slavery. As we roll into chapter 5, now we've got the context from last week. Now we're new material. So if you've been sleeping through the first seven minutes of this, it's time to wake up. Paul uses a metaphor. It's a marvelous metaphor. It's a metaphor of slavery. Here's what Paul says. Before I tell you what Paul says, I got to get you in the right frame of mind. So I want to discuss where we live today in America versus the time of Paul. This is a now and then comparison. We have uh, Judge Ken Starr here. Judge Ken Starr is not just the president of Baylor. He's not just the ex-dean of the Pepperdine Law School. He's not just a, a, a scholar and a constitutional scholar, but he used to be one of the most esteemed members of the federal judiciary. He was on a very elite court of appeals just below the Supreme Court of the United States of America. That's why when you're calling him, I never know what to call him. You can call him Dean Star. You can call him Ken Star. He likes to be called Ken. You can call him President Star. You can call him Judge Star. I just put it all together. I call him All Star. But my dear friend, all-star Ken, would, my, my dear friend Ken, would be quick to tell you, as would any number of the lawyers in this class, that one of the things we learn is Black's Law Dictionary. Black's Law Dictionary is a source that we go to periodically. Uh, it's not actually as prominently used in, in my life and practice as perhaps people might think, but it's there. And it's especially useful when you're in law school because you're coming across these words you've never used before. There's one word that kept being used when I was a brand new law school student was the word chattel. It's frequently used in the plural form, chattels. How many of you have chattels, not cattle, chattels? Raise your hand. You all have chattels. You just don't know it. Let me tell you what chattels are. Chattel is an article 
of personal property other than real estate. It's something you own other than real estate. You got a washer dryer. You got chattels. You got clothes. These are some of my chattels. They fit really tight right now. Because I've been eating others of my chattels and watching them transform from beautiful food into belly fat. Chattels. You got something to take notes with. A pencil. That's a chattel. Those are chattels today. If you go back and read Roman law, there's another chattel they had. People. Slaves. At the time Paul's writing, slaves, it was Emperor Antoninus in the mid-2nd century who finally said, okay, you can't just kill slaves without a good reason. According to Gaius's Institutes of Law which was written as it's Roman law, if you will. Under Roman law, though, at the time of Paul, there's not much difference between owning a human slave and owning a washing machine. Actually, they didn't really have washing machines. Electricity was pretty scarce in the Roman Empire. But, but a, you know, a writing stylus, a toga. You don't like your slave? You trade them, you sell them, you kill them. Slaves were chattel to be used and abused however the owner choosed to do so. I had to say choose because it just kind of fit. <laughs> that's, that, that's what slaves were. They were chattel. And it's really interesting to go back and to read Roman uh, writings from the time of Paul. The idea of slavery as a metaphor was used repeatedly. It was used by historians. It was used by poets. It was used by playwrights. It was used by orators. It was a very common metaphor in Paul's time. We still use it a little bit today that way. We can talk about a slavish addiction to pleasure. Where it's as if having pleasure is something that that has made you a slave. You have no control. At the time of Paul, slavery as a metaphor was used in a very derogatory sense, as a put-down. They would take someone who's not a slave, and say, oh, that person is, is a slave, da-da-da-da-da. Now, that didn't mean that they were a slave sometimes. Sometimes it was just a put-down. It was a metaphor put-down. It's like calling someone, uh, um, well, I can't think of one that, that, that we'd want to say. Um, but you can think of things where people don't really mean it literally. They're using the word as a put-down. Maybe I could say dirt bag. He's a dirt bag. Well, that doesn't mean he's a bag of dirt. That means he's not very useful. Okay, so that metaphor is used all the time. 
Paul uses the metaphor to the Galatians. And to understand it a little bit better, let me give you the social order of the Roman Empire. There were social strata, and it's not like America. You see, this is the now and then stuff. Back then, here in America, um, you can be born into poverty, and you can die a wealthy person. You can be born into no social circle, and you can die with, uh, uh, as a person who's dined with presidents. You can be born the son of a railroad worker in Lubbock, Texas and give the Pope a book you wrote. This is a cool life we live. Uh, It's just, look, we live, but but what you got to understand is it didn't used to be this way. And it was really hard to move from one social circle to another in the Roman time. And it's not just a social circle, it's a cultural circle, it's a status circle. And you're born into this class and you stay in this class. You go back and read Gaius's Institutes, you lawyers, my friends. Go read Gaius's Institutes. And, 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 and that was the first codification we've got of Roman law since the, the tablet, uh, the 12, what was it, the 12 tablets that they had? Or 12 tables or whatever back 400 BC. But Gaius's Institutes, the law on changing from one status to another was so elaborate. They had big legal battles and discussions over whether or not if a woman is a slave and a man is a free man and the man has sexual intercourse with the woman and a child is born, is the child a slave? What if the woman gets her freedom before the actual birth? What if the woman's the freed person and the man's the slave? I mean, it's like elaborate. It makes our family law code look like a walk in the park. Because they had this social strata. So here it is. The emperor's on top. There's one of those. He is the cheese. He stands alone. Okay, He's on top. Now, in addition to the emperor on top, you've got nobles. And the nobles... Uh, 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 are simply that. They're, they're the nobility. They're higher than the senators. The senators are appointed. At some point they were elected, but the whole election thing's kind of a ruse. It's an appointment thing. Then you have the equestrians. The equestrians are the big landowners that have uh, uh, all of the, the property that's growing all of the crops, that's feeding the empire, all the rest of this. All of those are the social elite. Those are the bon vivants. Those are the who's who. Those are the ones you want to get your picture with. Those are the ones where you think, that's someone I want to tell people I met. Now, from there, you've got municipal magistrates and local senators. That's your local government. You've just transitioned from big national, international figures down to big time local folks. And under that, you've got freeborn citizens. Below freeborn citizens, you have freed slave citizens. These are people who were slaves who've bought their citizenship or had it awarded to them. They're in a different class than the freeborn citizens. If you're thinking about Paul, you're thinking right. 
When Paul's talking to the Roman soldier, the Roman soldier says, Paul says, I'm a citizen. The Roman soldier says, I am too. I had to pay a lot of money for mine. Paul says, I was born this way. Paul's telling him, I'm a class above you, hot shot. I'm in a social circle you'll never be in because you weren't born in it. And you can't buy your way into it. And you'll see the soldier starting to treat Paul with great respect. Below all of these people are the slaves. Slaves could not be citizens. So there you have it. Slavery was used as a disparaging put down. And with that framework, now let's go look at Galatians 5. Now that we've got a context in our brain for this. Galatians chapter 5, Paul says the following. You've got now the cultural context, and I hope you've still got in your brain the context of Galatians, the occasion, why Paul's writing the letter. Paul says the following. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not Submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't return to that class, the lowest class of citizenry you can have. You've been set free. Now, Paul is probably coming at this not only from... We we, we not only need to consider this in a Roman sense. Where do I have my... But we also ought to consider this in the, a Jewish sense. Paul's a trained Jewish rabbi. We've got from the Dead Sea Scrolls some marvelous reading material that tells us repeatedly Paul's using another metaphor very common in Jewish circles at the time. It's not going to be as common in the Roman circles. But Jewish life was much more an, an agrarian life. And so you'll find in Jewish circles very frequently the use of a metaphor of a yoke. Jesus used it. My yoke is easy and light. Come to me. Paul uses that metaphor. Don't submit to a yoke of slavery. So he's got a put down built in here. He's saying this whole idea that the gospel, which is the Death, burial, resurrection of Jesus for our sins. This whole idea that the gospel is not in itself 100% sufficient for you in your standing before the Lord and in His kingdom. The idea that it's that plus anything is a submission to slavery. It's putting you in bondage. It's making something a master over you that can control your life from daylight to day dark. And he says, don't do that. Christ set you free for a reason. Christ didn't set us. Look, Christ could have come. And said, I'm paying the price for your sin. Now you live under the law and do the best you can under the law. But he didn't. 
He set us free from the law. And so the Gentiles, the, the goy, I guess, uh, plural, the goyim, us, most of us, we've got a few Jews in here, but we Gentiles don't have to become Jewish to get into the body of Christ. We don't have to follow the law to be in God's mercies. Paul says, look, if you accept circumcision, which is a, a, a one of the rituals under the law, required to make you a good Jewish man, if you accept circumcision, Christ is of no advantage to you. It doesn't mean just circumcision. That, again, is an illustration. That is a, a, a an example to be used as an understanding for what Paul's talking about. Let me get this fixed. It's driving me nutty. All right, there we go. I've got a sliding Bible today. All right. Now, so here's what Paul's saying. If you want to try and live presenting yourself to God based upon what you're doing, why do you even need Jesus dying for you? Christ is of no advantage. If you want to be start picking some of these laws that aren't moral laws, this is not love your neighbor as yourself. This is just you doing something to put yourself into God's group of people. Circumcision was something the Jews did to demark themselves as uniquely God's. Very important at the time. But what marks us now as uniquely God's is not circumcision. It's the blood of Jesus. You're severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. Did you know that's the only time in Scripture it speaks of falling from grace? It doesn't talk about falling from grace in the sense of, oh, gee, I became a sinner. I'm now living as a prostitute on the streets of Houston. Falling from grace is used as a phrase for people who are trying to justify themselves by the law. How is that falling from grace? Grace is the gospel. It is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the gift he gave us. That's the favor he did for us that's not merited by us. That is the charis. That is the doron. That is the gift of God. Jesus Christ dying for our sins in a substitutionary atonement. Now, you want to try and justify yourself any other way? You've fallen from the law. I mean, you've fallen from grace. You've fallen from, from the resurrection of Jesus. That doesn't mean you're going to hell. That means he's using a symbol here. You have, you, the freedom you had in Christ, you've given it up. He says, you were running so well. <laughs> what happened? Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Obeying, hupakuo, hearing and responding to this message of truth. So that's what we have. Let's go back to the Elmo. That gives you a flavor for the Galatians 5. This is the message Paul's having to send to those churches. Now, Paul then, next uh, uh, day of reading, we talked about the law or spirit. And it fits in well. It's a transition thought for Paul. So let's look at this together. Law versus spirit. Paul says, the law is really good at regulating outside behavior. The law is really good at, at, at telling your flesh, your outside, your, 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 your 
personage. The law is really good at, 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 at instructing you what to do. Don't steal. Don't lie. Use your tongue. Don't uh, commit adultery. The problem is, those are all external things. The law is really good at putting these rules and regulations down for your body. These external things. But the law is not equipped to transform your heart, to transform your, your mind, to transform your spirit. And so the spirit, unlike the law, Paul says, it's something that, that's from changing you from the inside out. He uses a metaphor of the fruit of the Spirit. Something that grows from the inside out. When fruit grows on a tree, you ever seen an apple tree? I, ha- I have seen many apple trees in my day. I happen to love apples from an apple tree. I have yet to see an apple tree grow where the fruit shows up and the first day, it's a fully formed peeling to the apple. It's just don't pick it yet. It's hollow in the middle. And then over time, it's going to fill itself in till it gets to the very core. If apples grew that way, we would pick them right before the core was grown. We wouldn't have to worry about the seeds. We could eat the whole thing. We could stuff them with peanut butter. We could do whatever we wanted to do. But fruit grows from the inside out. The fruit of the Spirit grows from the inside out. And the law is real good at regulating the outside. Jesus told His people that they were missing the boat with the law because they were thinking the law says, I can't kill my brother. And they didn't realize that meant you shouldn't even hate him. Jesus says, that's committing murder in your heart. There's, there's, there's a, a significance. You've got to get to the core of this. So if we go back then to, to Galatians 5, and we pick back up, Paul says in 5.16, ah, we'll find it. Hold on, don't get uh, car sick. Walk by the Spirit. You won't gratify the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit against the flesh. They're opposed to each other. Now, when Paul uses the word flesh, there are marvelous theological treatises written on Paul's use of the word flesh. So it's not the kind of thing we can just sit here and give you a buttonhole help with, but it's one to really chew on. He's got multiple layers in that word. The, the, the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now look at this. If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The works of the flesh are evident. You've got sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, All of these types of things, he says. I warn you, those who do such things don't inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's joy. 
It's peace. It's patience. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's faithfulness. It's gentleness. It's self-control. Are you kinder today than you were a year ago? If you are, glory be to God. His spirit is growing the fruit in you. If you're not, be attentive to what you're feeding in your life. Are you feeding the spirit? Are you feeding the flesh? Do you have more self-control than you had a year ago? If you do, praise the Lord. He's growing that in you. If you don't, be alert to what you're feeding. Are you feeding? Are you walking after? Are you pursuing? Are you gratifying? Is your life directed toward the flesh? Or the spirit? And the unique part about Paul's explanation here is this all ties into the gospel. This all ties into the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried and resurrected. Now some antinomians, to use the theological word, would like to take the death of Christ and turn it into a license to do anything we want. Paul had problems with people who said, wait a minute, Jesus died for our sins? Yes. Well, I'm going to sin more to make his death even more important. I will bring glory to God by making some really big sins so that his death is phenomenal. He didn't just die for me being a liar. He died because I'm a murderer. Praise God. No, Paul says you're missing the boat there. And Paul wants people to understand. One of the context readings we put here was Luke 17, 1 through 10. Luke 17, 1 through 10 is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he, and he says to his disciples. Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Little one being anybody. That's why I'm so proud of one of my daughters whose saying is, Dad, modest is hottest. I have to teach sometimes what modest is, but no. I have wonderful daughters. But, but it, is, it is a serious issue Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Pay attention. You don't help your brother sin. If your brother sins, you try to minister to him in his sin. Paul's not walking against Jesus. Paul's not preaching a gospel message that promotes sin. Paul's preaching a gospel message that will set you free from sin. I want to tell you something. I think it's J.B. Phillips who translated Romans 8, 1 and 2 uh, as, as follows. And, I, and I, this, I'm pulling this out from very old gray cells, so I can be so wrong. But I'm pretty sure he did. Um, uh, it, it reads in a normal version, Romans 8, 1 and 2. Uh, 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 um, uh, for the, 
there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set me free from the law of sin and death. And I think J.B. Phillips translates that from the vicious cycle of sin. You get bound up in the law, and I'm telling you, that's that it will trap you into a cycle of sin. If nothing else, the sin of self-righteousness because you think you're doing it. Or a defeat of sin because you just can't measure up. That's the way I am with food. I'm telling you. If I'm on the program, I'm on the program. But I mean, if I'm busting the program, I'm not going to bust it by 250 calories. Bring it on, baby. I'm already over the limit. Let's tilt these scales all the way. Looking forward to lunch, Mom. So, the, the, but Paul's saying there's a different way. You tune into the gospel. You respond to Jesus. You focus. And you're thinking, well, that, that's a non sequitur. How does focusing on the gospel help me live differently? If you were in communion this morning when Pastor David's talking about the significance of Jesus dying for you, you can't focus on Jesus dying for you and walk away unmoved. You cannot truly focus on Jesus sacrificing for you and walk away saying, I don't care. That focus on His love will create in us a love. The Apostle John said, we love because he first loved us. It grows it. Okay, I'm getting sidetracked. I'm sorry. All right, so let's go back to the PowerPoint. So the Spirit grows you from the inside out. And I gave you the context passages. I don't have time to get to the Romans passage, but you can go look. Now, Paul then, third lesson, and and we'll be almost done here. Seven minutes, we'll be out. Um... You reap what you sow. As he continues through Galatians, you reap what you sow. Uh, uh, recently, I had a chance to destroy myself trying to get weeds out of a rose bed. So I've entitled this slide, Thorns, Magic, and an Unfair God. <laughs> Did you know roses have thorns? Did you know if you try to weed a rose bed without gloves and with a short sleeve shirt on, you are going to look like a horror movie when it's done. I have, I have holes in my body. I have body piercings ready for hoops and studs. I got cuts. I got butchered. Why? Because my flesh pushed up against really sharp thorns. Well, that's pretty unfair of God. Why isn't he taking care of me? Well, bozo, because you're sticking your naked arm next to the big thorn and pushing against it. How many people think, how dare God let this happen to me? When you're just reaping what you sowed. If you stick your hand in fire, don't blame the Lord when your hand is burned. 
We don't live in a magic world. God did not make it a magic world. God made it a world uh, uh, that reflects His character, His consistency, His reliability. And the rule is, you cut yourself with a thorn, you're going to be cut. It's not a magic world where thorns no longer hurt me. I am a believer. I'm not saying God can't work miracles. He does. But I'm saying the norm is that the world works the way the world works. And that's what Paul is saying. You reap what you sow. I cannot be a gossip at work talking about different people, being destructive behind their back without it having a negative effect. I cannot have bitterness in my heart towards someone else without that bitterness permeating and growing into a plant inside of me. I can't have unforgiveness and truly experience in a day-to-day way the forgiveness of God. You reap what you sow. And, and Paul says it in Galatians. Galatians 6, verse 6. One who's taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. You sow to your flesh, you're going to reap corruption. You can't sit there. My mom used the illustration with our kids when they were younger of, of uh, 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 I think it was reference to TV or something. She said, look, whatever you're feeding you is what's going to grow in you. And so just be careful what you're putting in your body. It's no different with ideas than it is with food. So that's that's thorns, uh, magic, and an unfair doctor. Don't go blaming God when the thorns work that way. God's not mocked. God didn't make this world so that it should not apply to you and me. He made this world and then told us about it. The readings that I put in context for this. Deuteronomy 30. If we go back to the PowerPoint. Deuteronomy 30, thank you. Deuteronomy 30, he told the Israelites, hey, you live this way, you're going to be blessed. You live that way, you're going to get uh, taken over. Hey, he warned them, don't blame God. Oh, God, where are you? We're getting taken over. Yeah, I told you so. You know the story. Every preacher uses it. The fellow, the, 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 the flood comes. And it's right, and evacuate the neighborhood, evacuate the neighborhood. And the flood comes up, evacuate the neighborhood. And everybody, hey, buddy, get out of the house. No, no, I pray to the Lord, he's going to take care of me. Evacuate, evacuate. No, he's going to take care of me. Water's rise. He has to go to the second story of his house. Water comes up to the second story. Boat comes by. Get in the boat. Get in the boat. It's going to get worse. No, I pray to the Lord, he's going to take care of me. Goes up again. He's on the, the roof. 
Another boat comes by. Get in the boat. Get in the boat. No, I've prayed to the Lord. He's going to take care of me. Then the water keeps rising. He climbs on top of the chimney. A helicopter comes by. Drops a rope. Grab hold of the rope. No, I've prayed to the Lord. He's going to save me. The water keeps rising. He drowns. He goes to heaven. Lord, I had faith you were going to save me. I said, don't blame me. I sent two boats and a helicopter. I mean, God's not going to be mocked like this world's going to be different. And we get away with stuff we shouldn't. That's just not the way it works. So I don't have time to talk about the Jerusalem Council, but you can read about it in there. And it's more the Acts stuff anyway. Here are your key takeaways for the day. First, I want to walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh, not by the law. I want a relationship with God that's intimate. That's not based on what I do. That's based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to resolve myself on a daily basis, more than daily basis, to come before my Lord and Savior. Not only thanking Him for what He did, but chewing on it and thinking about it and seeing how it makes a difference in how I live. And I hope you'll join me in that. And I want to walk with my eyes open to rose thorns. And when something happens, now there will be things that happen that that aren't just because you sowed it. I don't want you to feel like, hey, I've got this suffering. It must be something I did wrong. No, you'll also get suffering for other reasons. You'll get suffering simply because we live in a fallen world. You'll get suffering because you have aligned yourself with Christ and against the powers and principalities of this age. But you'll also get suffering just because you bring it on yourself. And I'm going to be looking for that because I'm going to try and avoid those pitfalls. You know where temptation is. Don't go dabble your toes in it. Get as far away from it as you can. And then last, I want to watch God work with, in, and through me. And that would have been our point from home from Acts 15 and the Jerusalem conference. So I don't have time to tell you about it, but let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the honor of of the opportunity to share with my brothers and sisters, my friends, my family, where, where you've helped me come through in this world and where I am today. And Lord, I pray you'll continue to teach me and, and work with me and mold me into, to someone that you can use in your kingdom every day. In so many different ways. And I pray that for my brothers and sisters here. Father, would you please bless them. Make your face shine upon them. Be gracious to them. Draw their hearts into your heart. Let your spirit dwell within them. Let it clean out their ears to hear you. Open their eyes to see you. Soften their heart to be sensitive to you. Would you help them when they struggle? And help them when they don't. Would you bless them as they they, they face temptation and give them the wisdom and the insight, the love and the compassion that comes from following you to turn away from temptation. Lord, would you grow the Spirit's fruit in each person listening to this message. I pray right now your blessing on them of love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, all the fruit of the Spirit, Lord, would you grow it in them and in me. This is our prayer through our Lord Jesus and the good news of his death, burial, and resurrection. Amen.